you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, last time we went down through verse 19, but we're going to start today by going back and looking at verse 17 and following, because of course, as we've said many times, the chapter divisions came later. And so we need to see as best we can the whole passage. So Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. This is God's word. Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, They were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them. And told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Just try to imagine. Jesus has told his disciples again, this isn't the first time he's done it, he's told them again that he's going to die. And he's very specific about it. He's he's going to be crucified. He describes his betrayal, his arrest, 
his conviction in what was an illegal trial, and then being handed over to the Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities killing him by crucifixion, which was not just a means of death, it was a means of torture and basically the obliteration of any possibility of thinking of that person in a good light. Okay? If you watched a person killed that way, it totally destroyed their image, if you will. Jesus says that's what he's facing. The next thing that happens is the mother of James and John come to Jesus with her boys. She comes with her boys and she kneels down to make a request. Jesus has just said he's going to be crucified. And apparently these guys are still not getting it, nor is their mama. And so instead of just the two of them them coming and asking for the most prominent seats of honor in Jesus' kingdom, uh, mama comes. Would this be embarrassing if you were a teenager? Do you think it would be at least as embarrassing if you were an adult? Okay, You know, when you're, when you're a teen, you want to begin to feel a little more independent and able to do things on your own. When you're a man, then you really need that. Well, here comes Mama with her boys, and they went along with it. Shame on them. And the three of them come and they kneel in front of Jesus because they have a request. And all they're asking is just for the two most important seats of honor. I mean, that's all. We just want to be the most important people in your kingdom. Because we still believe. I know what you said, that thing about crucifying. I I don't understand what you're talking about there because we know that that couldn't possibly happen. Um, The crowd loves you. You know, I mean, people have seen the miracles and there are throngs of folks and we're, we're all on your side. And the next thing that's going to happen after the healing of these two blind men is that Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and it's going to be a parade, okay? It's going to be a huge deal. So the campaign is going really well and these guys just believe Jesus is about to come into his kingdom. Everything's going to be great. We're all going to be happy and We'd like to be the two. They didn't say, can we be your bodyguards? They didn't say, is there anything we could do in order to try and keep you from getting crucified? They just ignore what Jesus is saying because they've got their own agenda. And their agenda is they want to be the big shots. Okay, you're going to play basketball. You get on the team. Do you want to be a starter? Or would you just like to be on the team? I've got a dear friend who's a wonderful athlete, but when he was in college, his primary position was bench. Okay? Because I'm sure the coach had his reasons. But do we want the, to be just on the team or do we want to be starting? Okay? 
Do you want to be the captain of the team? I mean, Jesus is in charge. Okay, so we just want to be the two guys on either side. And mom is going with that. She thinks it's fair. She loves her boys. She thinks they're tremendous. I mean, come on, Jesus. They've been following you. I've been coming along and helping. I've been doing some of the cooking. And uh, I just think it would be appropriate, you know? Would you commit that to us? Would you? How would you hear that if you were Jesus? You've just said that you're on your way to die and they're jockeying for position. Jesus responds by saying, you don't know what you're asking, which is definitely true. Sometimes when you and I pray, we don't know what we're asking. We think it'd be so wonderful if God would do this for us. And God says, that would not work out the way you think. You don't know what you're asking. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? He has just described what's going to happen to him. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they, ignoring what Jesus has said, say, yes, yes we can. Yeah, sure, whatever it is. Yep, we're, we're in there. Okay, we'll, we'll be by you. We're, whatever, whatever you need us to do, we'll do it. That wasn't loyalty. That was a naive bravado. And sometimes when we pray, we don't really count the cost. Jesus was telling people over and over again, count the cost. Not because he didn't want people to follow him, not because he didn't want people to trust him, but because he didn't want people to get into something half-heartedly. Oh yes, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do whatever you say as long as I can keep my lifestyle. I'll, I'll do whatever you say as long as it doesn't involve people rejecting me. I'll do whatever you say as long as I'm comfortable with it. I'll do whatever you say as long as I don't have to learn anything new. It was about the time that I was finishing up French 2 in high school that I was praying about going to the foreign mission field. And as I prayed about it, I mean, not, you know, like for five minutes, but over a period of time, I'm saying, God, I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you want. I'm yours. You've purchased me. I'm I'm willing to do whatever you want. God gave me a scripture from the Old Testament where one of the prophets was told, I am not sending you to a people of strange speech. And I, I mean, it was one of those times when God's word, it was a rhema, God's word jumps off the page and says, this is for you, buddy. And that's why when I met Mrs. Wood and she said she was planning on going to Lebanon, I thought, oh, I guess we're not going to be together. Because God had already told me I wouldn't go in some place where they didn't speak my language. That doesn't mean I haven't visited. doesn't mean I haven't preached overseas with a translator. Something I actually enjoy. But when I got to the end of French, 
I tore my conjugation charts to shreds because I hated having to learn a foreign language. I mean, it just was torture for me. It was like somebody driving bamboo strips under my toenails. I mean, it was just awful. Ugh! Pastor what? don't do that. We want these young people to learn foreign languages. I want you to learn foreign languages, but I'm so glad I didn't have to. <laughs> now, I've actually learned some stuff since, but I didn't have to go to a place where they didn't speak my language. And for me, with my two-cell brain, that was a good thing. Okay? Some of you are going to be gifted in language. You're going to find it very easy to pick up languages. My daughter, when she was in Ukraine before we adopted her, had spent time with some people in Italy. And the woman from Italy called and spoke to her on the phone. And they were having an argument over the phone, going back and forth in Italian. And, I mean, my little eight- or nine-year-old girl at that time, she was nine when we got her, she got off the phone, and the missionary who had been there hearing this said, what did she say? What did that woman say? And Elizabeth started reciting in Italian a bunch of things that woman had said. And the missionary said, no, 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 what did she say in Ukrainian? And Elizabeth said, in Ukrainian? She didn't say anything in Ukrainian. <laughs> Some people pick up languages more easily than others. I am not one of those people. I prayed, God, I'll go where you want, I'll do what you want. But God already had a plan. And God has a plan for you, and you need to be willing to do what God says, but don't try and tell God what to do. Because you don't know what you're asking. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You pray that prayer, you'll be in a good position. Are you willing to go wherever God sends? Good. Are you willing to do whatever God says? Good. You should. But understand that God's kingdom is not set up like ours. Jesus said to these fellas, you will drink from my cup. But as far as sitting at my right hand and left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. What is Jesus modeling there? Here he is, the one through whom the universe was created. And he's saying, I leave that to my Father. Total submission on Jesus' part. That's how he did the miracles that he did. That's why the words he spoke had the power of life. He said, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And that's why things worked 
for him like they don't always work for us. He wasn't saying, okay, God, I'm going to do this, help me. He was saying, thy will be done. So, that was a private conversation between Jesus and two of his disciples and their mama. But word got out. Not because Jesus spread it, but because things like that happen. Maybe the disciples heard one of, you know, James saying to John, I told you it was a bad idea to bring mom. You know, I mean, don't know. But somehow the conversation got out and the other disciples heard and they were incensed. How dare you guys try and get the best seats? I mean, what makes you think that you should get them more than me? Jesus is on his way to the cross to die for us and to die for these guys. And they're acting like a bunch of humans. I want to say a bunch of little kids, but unfortunately they were adults and so are we. And yet people still act like this because this is human nature. We want the best seats. We want the biggest piece of pie. We want the favorite piece of chicken. We want the best for ourselves. I mean, well, that's just the American way. Yeah, it is. It's the Russian way too. We want what we want for ourselves. Jesus called them together while they're arguing. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. That's not the way God's kingdom works. If you want to really achieve in the kingdom, achieve servanthood. Be the best at serving others. Well, I wasn't hoping for a servant's role. Then you're in the wrong kingdom. My friend Horst Schulze was the founding CEO of the Ritz Hotel chain. Anybody heard of the Ritz? Um, They used to have uh, the top rating. You had single-star, two-star, three-star, and four-star hotels. And Horst went to the people who did the rating, and he said, I want you to come up with another category, the five-star hotel. We're going to be that. And they were like, well, he said, you just watch. Keep in mind what I said, five stars. They added a fifth star because the Ritz blew everybody out of the water. It was absolutely fantastic. Beautiful properties, beautiful furnishings, and fabulous service. Horse said, we got letters from customers all over the world. None of them ever said, you know, when we got to your hotel, that chandelier in the lobby just totally made it a great vacation. That antique furniture that you had in the sitting area, boy, that just, that just made our time 
wonderful. He said, never got a letter like that. He said, the letters we got over and over and over were, thank you so much for the best vacation we ever had. The service was fabulous. That concierge went so far above and beyond what we've ever experienced to make sure that all of our needs were taken care of. The front desk personnel were fabulous. That made Marcella was just fabulous. She made sure everything was spotless. I mean, over and over, letters came telling about the service. So Horst ended up being not only the guy who set the standard of service in that company, but he became much sought after by other companies who wanted to transform their culture into one that was better at customer service. One of the companies that used his approach has a phrase that he had made mandatory at the Ritz, and they made it mandatory among their employees. You've heard this phrase. My pleasure. Where do you think Chick-fil-A got that? They got that from Horace Schultze at the Ritz. Because the folks at Chick-fil-A thought, we need to treat people who come for fast food the way that the Ritz treats people who come for an expensive vacation. The idea goes back to this. Aim to be the best at serving. Horst says, you know, yes, I was the CEO of a huge corporation. But he says, all I really am is a waiter. He said, I started out working as a server in the hotel back in Europe, before the Ritz chain existed. And he said, I was a waiter, but I was the best waiter. I took care of my guests. And gradually, because my guests really appreciated the way that I took care of them, I was promoted and promoted and promoted and promoted. But he said, it's always been about treating other people with excellence. Jesus said, if you want to be part of his kingdom and you want to achieve, achieve servanthood. Achieve servanthood. Is that your aim? Are you hoping to be memorably good at taking care of others? As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the side of the road, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Mark tells us in his gospel that one of these two was Bartimaeus. The reason that that becomes meaningful is because they 
obviously knew Bartimaeus after the fact. Remember the end of this says they followed Jesus. But Jesus asked them the same question that he asked the mother of James and John. And that is, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want? I wonder if the Lord were to ask you that this morning. Would you even have an answer? What is it that you want? If Jesus came to you right now and said, what do you want me to do for you? Are you even tuned in? What do you want? My uh, pastor, when I was a kid, had known Lyndon Johnson back in Texas. And so when LBJ became the President of the United States, it was arranged for him to go and visit the President. He hadn't seen him in decades. But he's there at the White House, spending the night, And the phone in the bedroom where he's staying rings. Switchboard is put through a call from his brother back in Texas. His brother back in Texas had a barber shop. And his brother said, Calvin, is it true that you're at the White House? And, I mean, he'd already gone through the White House switchboard to get to Calvin, so that was kind of an interesting question. Calvin said, yes. And he said, and you're going to meet with the president tomorrow? Calvin said, yes. And he said, listen, man, would you do me a favor? Would you ask him to autograph a picture of him to me so I can put it on the wall in my barber shop? Calvin said, okay. Conversation over. Next day, Calvin's meeting with the President of the United States. And after they've reminisced for a few minutes and chatted a little bit, the President said, so Calvin, what can I do for you? And Calvin said, would you autograph a photograph of yourself to my brother so that he can put it on the wall in his barber shop back in Texas? The President said, certainly. Opened a drawer, pulled out one of the PR photos, got the spelling of his brother's name, and autographed it, gave it to Calvin. Calvin took it, left the Oval Office, and thought, I'm an idiot. The most powerful person in the most powerful country on earth just asked me if there was anything he could do for me. And all I could think to ask for was an autographed photo for my brother's barbershop. I mean, no requests about policy, no requests about doing something to help the folks back home. I mean, none of that. Just just an autographed photo for the barbershop in Texas that his brother operated. And Calvin said... That's like 
a lot of our prayers. We're talking with the king of the universe. And the stuff we ask for is all going to go away. You want a parking spot that's closer to the door? Is that really, that, that's really what you're after? Okay. You, you, you want a good grade on this test? Is that really? You, you want that girl to like you? Is that it? You want that guy to notice you? Is that it? What, what are you after? What are you pursuing? I urge you to consider the fact that Jesus is asking you, what do you want? Now, when Jesus asked the blind men, it may have seemed like an obvious question. I mean, they were calling out to him, have mercy on us. But Jesus asked, nevertheless, what do you want me to do for you? It's essentially the same question that he asked the mother of his two friends. What do you want? Lord, we want our sight. And so Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. What's better? You get your eyesight or you become a follower of Jesus? What's your goal? Do you want to be a follower of Jesus? Is that what you're aiming for? I pray so. Because let me tell you, if you've got the best eyesight on the planet, 150 years from now, it's not going to matter. What does matter is your relationship with him. Everything else goes away. Everything else goes away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have compassion. Even on the way to the cross, you have compassion on people who are just thinking about being able to see. Thank you that on the way to the cross, you had compassion on your disciples even while they were just jockeying for power. And you told them that they needed instead to follow your example because you were on your way to offer up your life as a ransom for many. Lord, we thank you that you came not to be served, but to serve, and we pray that you would help us to become true servants, trusting you, loving you, serving you by serving others. We'll be careful to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.